Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. I am here with a guest that I have been quoting a lot. Um, some of his some of his research. I'm super excited to um, have him all the way across the other side of the pond. Um, Christopher Lowry. Um, I'm a really bad at introducing people, Christopher. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in your um, own words before we talk about your amazing research. Okay, I'm uh, Christopher Lowry, Associate Professor of Integrative Physiology at University of Colorado Boulder in Boulder, Colorado, USA. Brilliant. And um, Christopher, so that we can all get to know you, the um, the the first question we have to ask you to get on a personal level: what um, what is it that makes you happy? Oh gosh, a lot of things make me happy. Um, having conversations with good friends makes me happy and to be honest being in nature makes me happy <laughs> i know that's the topic of yeah. our discussion today but one of my uh i guess sacred places is the wind river wilderness area in in wyoming oh wow and this is a attractive wilderness that's 150 miles from north to south and 50 to 60 miles wide and the only way to access this wilderness is on foot or on horse and when you're there at least when i've been there you're kind of cut off from the modern world and it's just you and and nature yeah incredible well um christopher where do you think um your love of nature has come from i grew up surrounded by nature. I grew up in Wyoming and uh, we lived in small towns. I spent some of my summer months uh, on our family homestead in western Nebraska. Um, so lots of time wandering the fields and playing in the creek um, and lots of time just wandering in, in, the, in the hills and mountains, particularly when I was in middle school and high school living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is just a spectacular natural wonder, really. It's it's one yeah. of the world's treasures, I think. Wow. I, w I want to tell everyone to visit these places, but if everyone visits these places, they won't be as special for you. So I'm just going to say to everyone, <laughs> don't visit these places that Christopher has told you about. I, I hope people can visit these places. It's uh, it's, it's good for the soul. No, I totally agree. Um, Christopher, so um, the first question I've got for you, because a lot of people in the UK will know, um, even through um, seeing your research in the press or because I've been shouting about it, um, around the, the bacteria in soil type stories around triggering serotonin in a similar way to something like Prozac. But... Um, I'd love to you to sort of like repeat the headline, but but sort of go deep into go a bit deeper into it. Like, and first off is how true are these headlines? Do you, is it sort of has the message been lost in the in the headline? Um, and then go a little bit deeper. So I suppose the question is, can can soil make you happy? I think the the bottom line is yes, and then the question becomes how. What are, what are the mechanisms? And this, this story really goes back for our lab 20 years now. And at that time, I was at the University of Bristol in 
in the UK. So shout out to all my friends uh, in <laughs> England. Um, so I was in England for 12 years, uh, starting in 1995. And we started studying this bacterium called Mycobacterium vacci. And it's you, you can think of Mycobacterium vacci as one example of a bacterium in soil. But soil is really a very complex ecosystem that has millions of bacteria, literally. And even in a small amount of soil, you have incredible biodiversity. And we are studying one, and what we found was that simply putting these bacteria into the, into the airways of mice could activate serotonin neurons in the brain, increase serotonin release in the prefrontal cortex. This is what all antidepressant drugs do. And so we postulated at the time that it would also have antidepressant effect. And lo and behold, when we uh, treated the mice with the bacterium, we saw antidepressant-like behavioral responses. So confirming this idea that simply being exposed to this bacterium from soil could have antidepressant-like behavioral effects. And since then, we've gone on and done 20 years of research, which has only supported these original findings and in a sense expanded them to more uh, thoroughly characterize what this bacterium is doing. And part of it, what it's doing is increasing what we might call stress resilience. So our ability to withstand negative negative effects of or negative outcomes of stress or prevent these negative outcomes have you got any views Christopher? because when you when you sit back and you hear this in the cold light of day to me i've i'm just still outstanding by it like i still find it amazing but i also find it shocking that lots of people are not aware of this um type of research and it's one of the reasons that i, I wanted to get you on have you have you got a view on why this is not necessarily really well known or 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 talked about as much as it should be so <clears throat> when we had a press release when i was at the university of bristol um when we published these findings in 2007 and i i mentioned in the press release that it you know these findings make us wonder if we shouldn't all be spending more time playing in the dirt uh yeah. it was a bit of a wild speculation at the time right because all we had shown is if we take this bacterium that was isolated from the mud around Lake Kyoga in Uganda, that we saw these antidepressant effects and the activation of serotonin neurons in the brain. Yeah. But over the last 20 years, people have really addressed this question uh, directly. And now, now there's empirical evidence that exposure to the soil specifically has beneficial effects in both animals and also in humans. And I could certainly go into some of the mechanisms involved. Um, but it's really exciting because now people are literally exposing children to soil. Yeah. And this was just published a few weeks ago in Finland by uh, Aki Sinekin, maybe pronouncing, mispronouncing Aki's name. Sorry, Aki, <laughs> that's not correct. But... Um, what they did is they literally brought the forest floor into a daycare center in the city. Yeah. 
and they compared this to uh, children at a daycare center uh, uh, with an outdoor play area in, in another part of the city. And what they found was that exposure to the soil and some, some guided activities interacting with the soil impacted the children's immune system in what we would consider a very beneficial way. And so it altered the microbiome, so the, the types of bacteria that were on the, the skin of the children, and it also, also altered their immune system. And it did so in a way that increased what we would call immunoregulatory signaling or anti-inflammatory signaling. And this is important, because, and this is what we found with Mycobacterium vacci is Mycobacterium vacci can induce a, an immune cell, which is the human immune cell that is designed to resolve inflammation and, and prevent inappropriate inflammation. And it does so by releasing something called anti-inflammatory cytokines. And so, in other words, the bacteria are engaging our body's own cellular machinery that's designed to keep inflammation under control. And that's important for people that live in cities because as we've moved from farm environments, hunter-gatherer existence into cities, we've lost contact with these types of microorganisms that can induce immunoregulation and anti-inflammatory signaling and keep inflammation under control. This is something called the hygiene hypothesis or the biodiversity hypothesis or the yeah. old friends hypothesis. They all converge on the same idea that uh, we've lost contact to these types of microorganisms and that that's leading to what many consider an epidemic of inflammatory disease in modern urban societies. And that includes overt inflammatory disease, but very close to our interests in my lab, also increased risk of stress-related psychiatric disorders like anxiety disorders, affective disorders like depression, and also trauma and stressor-related disorders like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. It's so interesting. I mean, one of the last podcasts we did was Laura Guerge, who, who showed that in children, giving um, can increase happiness. So it, it's, it sounds like we need to start giving soil um, <laughs> at parties. <clears throat> and in terms of... Yeah, or, or living, breathing soil, right? I mean, um, soil, it's clear now that soil has health-promoting properties that until now have gone unrecognized. And I think, you know, people, part of, part of the, the challenge, I think back to your original question, why don't more people know about this? When we first started thinking, it makes us wonder if we shouldn't all be spending more time playing in the dirt. You have to then wonder, well, what is it about the dirt that's conveying this information to our, our bodies? And so people imagine, you know, touching the soil, and certainly that uh, that will uh, that will result in having soil on your hands and your body and your skin. That may be important, but perhaps more important is the fact that we're breathing in the dust from the soil. Mm. And we often talk about the gut microbiome, and many people know how important the gut microbiome is for human health. 
but our airway microbiomes, our lung microbiomes are just as important as our gut microbiomes. We don't know as much about our air, the microbiomes in our airways, but that doesn't mean that they're not important. They're very important and they can signal to our immune system in much the same way that our gut microbiome can. So I'm getting a quite a, quite a technical question as, um, as someone who grew up on a farm, Christopher. Um, and one thing that farmers do a lot, which would bore anyone who's not a farmer, is they talk about the quality of their soil. So they will say, oh, this is an area that's good for growing this. Oh, this area is too sandy, so it should be like that, and so on and so on. So is there a type of soil that, that is better for this, for, for this type um, uh, of, of exposure, or is it all equal? I think they're not all equal, and um, there's growing interest in the relationship between the, the, the quality of soil or the, the healthiness of soil and human health. And various groups have written about this and the importance of uh, learning more about the relationship between healthy soil and human health. Uh, and this has two sides. One is how do you define healthy soil? And uh, I think the best answer that we have right now is similar to how do you define a healthy human microbiome? And the consensus is a highly diverse microbiome is healthy and a highly diverse soil ecosystem is healthy. So these are two different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And the best predictor of a healthy soil, best predictor of a healthy human microbiome is high diversity. And so that can that can simply be uh, uh, the number of different types of bacteria that you find in the soil, meaning the more bacteria you find, the more diversity you have, and more diversity is healthier. So a good analogy would be, say, an Amazonian rainforest. You know, the a Amazonian rainforest has incredible biodiversity. And compare that to a monoculture of wheat in a wheat field. To keep the wheat alive, we have to treat it with fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer. Um, and without those things, the plants will die. Yeah. So that's an unhealthy ecosystem yeah. without a lot of biodiversity. Whereas the rainforest can withstand many different stressors and, and insults. Um, because of its biodiversity, and all of that, all of that is related to what's called the biodiversity hy hypothesis, and the idea that, um, again, coming from the researchers in Finland, the more biodiversity you have, literally in your backyard, the more protection you have from allergic allergies and asthma. In other words, the more effectively you can suppress inappropriate inflammation. It's an incredibly powerful image, Christopher, isn't it, that you're that you're creating here? Because when we first spoke, and what I found incredible, a lot of the researchers that I've spoke to on, in different areas, I've been speaking to them about their specific research. But in cases like this, in cases I didn't expect to come back to a diversity conversation. So um, Professor Jeremy Dawson at the NHS did study into uh, mortality rates um, and the association with employee engagement. But they also found that, because um, 
they also found that mortality rate and infection rates were were higher where there was a lack of diversity and there was discrimination in the workplace. And, and, and now we've got another powerful image here in, in biology around how important diversity is. So it, it's sort of gone from one type of diversity to a really powerful conversation about all of nature and diversity, which um, is, is just incredible for us to hear that because we're starting to knit all these bits of information together from across the world. Um, I, I think that's a good analogy. I mean, here, all, all of these examples that we've talked about, the soil, the gut microbiome, the airway microbiome in humans, the human body as a whole, and even a work environment, in a sense, are all ecosystems. And there's no question that um, a more diverse ecosystem is a healthier ecosystem and one that can withstand stressors and insults and thrive. Um, and that's something we should all be striving for, is high diversity, bi high biodiversity, because of its health benefits and um, stress resilience effects. Yeah. Um, Chris, I just want to um, read out uh, um, something that that, um, that you were quoted on, which um, I found quite op very optimistic, actually, and um, and in sometimes when. <laughs> times as tough like in COVID to hear something like this I thought was really um, sort of cheered me up on the day which is we're just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg in terms of identifying the mechanisms through which bacteria evolved to keep us healthy it should inspire awe in all of us and um, can you can you talk us through that 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 statement and what you meant by that <clears throat> So uh, in our very specific case with Mycobacterium vacci, we were interested in finding, you know, answering the question, what are, what are the components of this bacterium that can provide these anti-inflammatory or health beneficial effects? And so my colleagues actually in the UK um, went on a journey to isolate molecules that could have anti-inflammatory effects on human uh, immune cells. And they focused in on one molecule, which happened to be a fat molecule. So it's literally a tri, triglyceride molecule with a glycerol backbone and three fatty acid chains. Yeah. And it turns out that simply injecting that fat molecule into mice could project or could protect against allergic airway inflammation in a model of allergic asthma. Um, and then we took that further, and we 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 took the the free fatty acid, think of, you know, an omega-3 fatty acid. We have all heard that term. However, the structure of this fatty acid was very unique. It's not found in humans. It's not found in mammals. It's not, it's not even found in other bacteria other than mycobacteria. And, that, and that's because it has a, a double bond in a unique position in the, in the carbon chain. So just imagine this highly unique fatty acid that's only found in mycobacteria. And what we found is that that fatty acid binds to a receptor in a mammalian immune cell. And the receptor belongs to the, to the mammalian immune system. And one step back, this, these immune cells take up the bacteria, take up the mycobacteria, and these mycobacteria can survive inside the immune cell. 
And so imagine that the, the bacteria releases these fat molecules, the, the cell cleaves off the fatty acids, and then the fatty acid can bind to a receptor that's designed to shut off the inflammatory cascade inside the immune cell. And so this could only conceivably happen if there had been a long-term co-evolutionary relationship between the bacteria, which are found in the soil, and the mammalian immune system. And if we, if we think from an evolutionary perspective or D Darwinian medicine perspective, mammals evolved as burrowing animals in the soil at the time of the, the dinosaurs. And you can imagine these early mammals 265 million years ago, burrowing in the soil, you know, the soil is in their face and they're breathing in the soil and swallowing the soil. Uh, eating worms that are in the soil and other insects, and literally immersed in soil their yeah. entire life lifetime, right? And those bacteria were also present 265 million years ago, and it seems that there's been this kind of co-evolutionary process where the bacteria benefit from the mammalian host and the mammalian host benefits from the bacteria, and then we have this symbiotic relationship and they interact in very, very specialized ways to promote that symbiotic and beneficial relationship with each other. Wow. So that's, that's why we think that those mechanisms exist because mammals have never existed without these soil bacteria, the presence of these soil bacteria in their bodies, particularly their airways but also in their, in their gastrointestinal system. And we know that there are specialized immune cells in the gut and in the airways. They're called microfold cells. These microfold cells grab onto mycobacteria. They have little tentacles. They grab onto the mycobacteria, pull them inside the cell, and then extrude them into the body. Why would our bodies do that? Why would we literally sample yeah. bacteria from our soil environment, pull them into the cell and then push them into the body. You have to, I mean, that you just have to stop and wonder why do our bodies do that, right? Why are we sampling these bacteria from our environment and then pushing them into our body? They must be doing something for us that we don't quite yet fully understand. Yeah. One thing that they're doing is keeping our immune system uh, balanced and optimized. Yeah. And it may be that by sampling the bacteria that are in the environment in which you live is optimizing your immune system so that there's a correspondence between your environment and your physiology. Wow. And wouldn't that be adaptive to be able to customize and optimize your own personal physiology and immune system so that it's optimized for the environment in which you personally are living that yeah. farm that you grew up on or that forest that you grew up in in our hunter-gatherer uh, existence or the savanna that you grew up on yeah um, it's an intriguing idea i mean that's that's part of why I think we should all be in awe because there we have existed in this environment that is literally 
um, a complex microbial ecosystem. Yeah. And our bodies are constantly sampling those microorganisms and using those microorganisms to customize our physiology in a way we think that optimizes our well-being and perhaps our our happiness which is part of of health I, I just love this it just blows your mind doesn't it to hear because i mean even yesterday i took my children because it's half term here i took them um, to see the wilberforce tree which is where the prime minister pitt and william wilberforce sort of had their sort of conversation about um ending slavery and then just down the road is um charles darwin's house so we tried to do it all in one day. We missed out on Charles Darwin's house because we didn't have enough snacks to get there. But um, we will return. But it, what I find fascinating is just how an idea, uh, idea or ideas can change the world. And I think the awe is the absolute right word for this, Christopher, because as soon as you hear this stuff, you can't unlearn it. And since you've told me, I've had so many, like even at night, I'm dreaming about this stuff because you start to see the world a little bit differently. Um, Christopher, to add on, end on um, a really practical note, because um, we've got a lot of practitioners and practitioners on the front line. Um, one um, is something you shared with me and sent me a photo of, of uh, last weekend, and one's business case related. So the first one is um, you mentioned about if you're out shopping, um, what you should put together on a diversity of, of, of effectively salad and veg. Can you just share that story whilst I turn my light on? Cause it's got really cloudy and suddenly really dark here. <laughs> About yeah, of course. So it's a really good practice. Yeah, I'd be, what people can do. I'd, I'd be happy to. So, you know, we've talked about two sources of microbial diversity for, for humans. One is the air we breathe. And so exposure to, biodiverse environments, natural environments, healthy soils is going to enhance our the diversity of our microbiomes in our airways. Yeah, but we also have a, a massive uh, ecosystem within our gastrointestinal tract, our gut microbiome. And several years ago I learned that one of the one of the one of the survey questions in the American Gut Project that predicts how much biodiversity you have, how much diversity you have in the gut microbiome was the following. In the past week, how many different plants have you eaten? And the options are zero, one to five, all the way up to over 30. And those people who had eaten or reported having eaten 30 or more different plants in the past week showed the highest diversity. And so I thought, well, I'm just gonna go to the grocery store and get 30 different plants, <laughs> which I did. And I washed them off in the sink and then put them in a blender with six, cup, six cups of water and make this kind of uh, ve vegetable shake, which I then have um, four heaping tablespoons in a, in a quart jar of, of water every night for dinner. And the whole point of it is kind of a, a microbiome diversity enhancer, if you will. It's very intentional. You know, it's, we, you know, you might think, okay, just eat lots of kale, right? Now, certainly that's going to be healthy because kale has wonderful things in it. It has fiber, it has nutrients, it has antioxidants. All of these things are good, but it also has a microbiome. And that's the part that we haven't thought about historically. Even a three to four leaf spinach plant has over 800 different species of bacteria inside the plant. Mm. 
Unbelievable. And you can't wash these off because they're inside the plant, right? That's that's the microbiome of the plant. I've not been able to look at spinach in the same way since you told me that, Christopher. <laughs> and imagine, you know, depending on where you grow the, the spinach, it will have a different microbiome. And think about think back about optimizing your microbiome based on the microbiome of your natural environment. Um so if you're growing your own plants uh, in your own garden, you can uh, you can expose yourself to the microbiome of your local natural environment, which may have ben may have benefits that we don't yet understand. But it's it's very clear that enhancing the biodiversity of your ecosystem, your airways, your your gut microbiome is one strategy for promoting stress resilience and there are many ways that this can happen um some of which we're only just beginning to understand but when you have bi high biodiversity it's very difficult for a pathogen to get in get a foothold and proliferate yeah and so you may may have heard of c diff infection for example yeah um it's a terrible terrible uh, inflammatory condition, and what one of the one of the biggest risk factors for C diff infection is having a series of antibiotics in succession. So, what are you doing every time you take a different antibiotic? You're decreasing the diversity of your microbiome and killing off entire categories of bacteria. And once you reduce the diversity of the microbiome to a to a certain minimum level that provides an opportunity for C. diff to get in and take over this ecosystem. Yeah. It's like in a wheat field, you know, a fungus or uh, an, an infection can uh, easily get in and um, proliferate and take over the ecosystem, unless in, in that case where you're treating with antifungal agents in, in, in agriculture right? Um, these are highly analogous situations. And so by maintaining high diversity with a highly diverse diet, so if you're, if you're consuming 30 different plants a day, every day, you can kind of rest assured, okay, I'm getting 30,000 different species of bacteria today um, because they're all, you know, they're all fresh, they're all there um, in the jar, in the, in the fridge. Yeah. And then, you know, you can kind of eat what you want after, after that. And, you know, you have this basic background of diversity, which gives you the, the stress resilience that you need on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. You've already changed me. I had a really unhealthy cheese and tomato pizza the other day, and I just chucked a load of stuff that I could find in the fridge on top because I thought I've got, to get, <laughs> I've, got to get, I've got to get my diversity up on this pizza. And, Christopher, one last, the last point, my last question for you is – we're really lucky on Happiness and Humans to have CEOs and HR directors from across the world listening in. Um, and I think a lot of them will be like me. They'll be like, oh my God, like a real realization when they hear some of this stuff. Um, if, you were, if you were to hear some of this research fresh and you're trying to take it back to your organization and think, how could I apply this um, in my business from and you can pick anything from office design to maybe how, how people are eating or whatever. But is there one thing that you would, if you were a CEO, that you'd take off the table from this research to, to bring back to try and 
build a build a more healthy company moving forward. So, um, in the in the sense that healthy people create a healthy company, um, any steps that can be taken to enhance the biodiversity of of the environment, the workplace, should be beneficial for the company. Uh, because it promotes healthy people. And this could be anything from including uh, biodesign into the workplace, bringing life plants into the workplace, yeah. increasing the biodiversity of the workplace, offering diverse options for diverse uh, meals, if you're providing meals for, for your um, people in your work workplace. And something that we don't, we don't we we haven't really um done the studies to address part of the diversity of our microbiome comes from other people um you know occupying the space that other people occupy and you know that's become become um painfully clear to all of us during covid 19 right that we are sharing microorganisms including yeah. the SARS-CoV-2 virus, if we're within six feet of each other, right? And we only know that because, you know, we have experienced that this is a highly, highly transmissible microorganism on um, aerosols, right? But that's not the only thing that's being exchanged among people. And so how does the biodiversity of people in the workplace affect the biodiversity of the members of a work group? We don't know the answer to that, but it's something to think about. The yeah. other thing that um, we don't think about, and maybe it can be implemented in a workplace, maybe it can't, but we know that having a dog during the first two, two years of life can prevent or reduce the risk of allergic asthma later in life. Yeah. And so yeah, it's hard it's hard to imagine in our current workplace, you know, um, the way we conceptualize work spaces, yeah, increasing the biodiversity of animals in the workplace. Yeah. We've not really had that conversation, right? But I mean, one of the things that we we see on campus here at CU Boulder is during finals time, though there are organizations that bring dogs in onto campus and allow students to spend time with the dogs. Yeah. Right. This is very calming. Um, but it's also an opportunity for enhanced biodiversity for each yeah. and every person that interacts with that dog. Right. So um, I think that's an element of work environments that we haven't really as a as Western society, we haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about. But let me end with this this example, two examples. Do I have time for two examples? We do, because I am just so fascinated by this subject. We want to keep hearing. So, so yes, please. Um, there's a wonderful study where they looked at, um, they compared Hutterite children to Amish children in the United States. And these two populations are both derived from the same ancestry in Europe. Um, they both use... Um, more traditional farming practices. However, the Hutterites have adopted modern farming practices, including use of tractors. 
The Amish, on the other hand, continue to use horses uh, to plow their fields and pull the carts that they, they ride in. And often these animals are very close to where um, the families live in their homes. And what researchers found is that, well, what we know, uh, and it, it, this effect is so profound that it's just called the farm effect. Growing up on a farm protects you from uh, allergies and asthma later in life. And that's true with Hutterites and Amish children. The Hutterites have lower risk of allergic asthma than average American children. The Amish have much lower risk compared to average American children. And what they were able to show is they could literally take the dust from the bedrooms of the Amish children, and that dust could protect from allergic airway inflammation in mice. Wow. So that, you know, if you had any doubt that exposure to soil and dust can affect human physiology, that one study should put that to rest. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that, you know, um, we should all be spending more time playing in the dirt. Yeah. I think and now 20 years later, um, this is, this has become, become clear. It really does matter. Um, so the second example, I totally forgot what I was yeah, going to talk about. I, I honestly, but, I, I, I'd heard, this is the second time I've heard of that. And it, for us and every listener, it's good to have a bit of space to process it, Christopher, because they are such simple but big concepts for us to be thinking about. And I think they are so applicable to work. So, um, yeah, it's brilliant. So, yeah, sorry, uh, number two, if you've remembered it. <laughs> number two. Uh, well, it's probably not what I was thinking of, but there is another study that just came out. This is uh, this is from University of Adelaide in Australia. Yeah. And they addressed this in a very highly controlled study uh, in mice. And what they did is they 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 wanted to test this. Oh, I want to, I know what the other study was. I'll come back to that. It's the study that we did with Stefan Reber in Germany. Okay, so we'll have three points. But this is this is a, this is an exciting study, and it was just published. Uh, by Martin Breed and his colleagues at University of Adelaide in Australia. And they wanted to test this idea that exposure to biodiversity has impacts on physiology and um, emotional behavior in mice. That, and here they're studying anxiety, uh, which is something that's, that's clearly of great interest to our, our lab. And what they did is they took, they took soil dust from different environments and they had high biodiversity soil and low biodiversity soil and no soil. And what they found was that depending on what kind of dust was blown through the cages, they saw increases or changes in the gut microbiome of the mice exposed to this high biodiversity soil dust. So this is just exposure to the dust. And also they found um, evidence that there were bacteria from this highly diverse soil exposure that were protecting against anxiety 
or anxiety-like behavioral responses in the mice. So again, you know, this idea that simply exposure to biodiverse environments, simply exposure to soil dust yeah. can help protect us from uh, inflammation and anxiety uh, is, uh, this idea is bearing fruit in very highly controlled experiments. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a study that we we did in collaboration with Stefan Reber at University of Ulm in Germany. And, you know, I mentioned this farm effect that protects you from allergic air, airway inflammation. Um, but we also know that inflammation is a risk factor for anxiety disorders, affective disor disorders like depression, and also PTSD. Yeah. And one of the main risk factors for psychiatric disorders is psychosocial stress. So imagine a workplace environment, a toxic environment. This is very harmful long-term yeah. to human health, both in the context of inflammatory disease like cardiovascular disease and in the context of mental health disorders like depression. And that's well documented. So we wanted to test the idea that growing up on a farm could also protect you from the negative consequences of psychosocial stress. Yeah. Stress due to interactions with other humans. And so there's a, there's a stress test in humans. It's called the Trier Social Stress Test. And participants are asked to... <clears throat> stand up in front of a panel of scientists in white lab coats and give a speech. <laughs> oh, and apparently this is, this is really, really stressful. <laughs> uh, and it, it reliably induces hormonal and immune responses to stress and also anxiety and perceived stress. And what we found was that when we compared individuals who had grown up on farms with farm animals for the first 15 years of their lives in Germany, to people that had grown up in cities of at least 100,000 people without pets and brought them in and exposed them to this psychosocial stress, something that you might experience in work, at a workplace, right? Yeah. Getting up in front of a boardroom and giving a talk, people sitting around the board, boardroom, you know, blank faces, <laughs> um, nobody's, you know, offering excessive congratulations, um, you know, critical evaluation, it's very stressful for humans. And what we found was that people that grew up on the on farms reported feeling more stressed and anxious coming in to the clinic and giving the speech. However, the people that grew up in cities had a much exaggerated inflammatory response mm. to the stress. Their immune system was hyperactivated and that included increased numbers of immune cells circulating throughout the body and also increases in pro-inflammatory immune signaling molecules called cytokines. And these are cytokines that we know when they're elevated over long periods of time, increase the risk of depression, increase the risk of anxiety and increase the risk of PTSD. And so simply having grown up in a city without exposure to a bio, you know, a highly diverse 
uh, biodiverse environment put you at greater risk of inflammatory responses to purely psychosocial stressors mm. that we, we would find in the workplace. Simply giving up and giving a, a, a speech in a boardroom, for example. And that means to, to that, that implies to us that if you have a group of people that um, grew up in cities, live in cities, there's a need to compensate for that increase in the propensity for inflammation and somehow keep that under control. And the best way that we know to do that right now is to increase the diversity, the biodiversity of the, of the workplace or the, their, their home environment or their exposure to natural environments, um, you know, company retreats in the, the highlands in Scotland, for example, great yeah. idea. Um, or the Lake District, uh, you know, pub walks on Sunday, yeah. um, you name it, getting outdoors, breathing in the air that's in these biodiverse environments. Um, there's very good evidence now that that is going to be beneficial for wow. both physical health and mental health, particularly over the long term. And uh, I'll end with one study, one study that I think is very relevant for People in the city, in in uh, you know white collar um, jobs, and this is the Whitehall study. Yeah. And so we've known for a very long time that people that these, these are the civil servants, I believe, that live and work yeah. in London, and uh, we've known for a very long time that there's a hierarchy, and if you're at the very top of the hierarchy in 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 the civil servant uh, career track then you have very low risk of cardiovascular disease. If you're one level down, you have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. If you're two levels down, you have a higher risk of yeah. cardiovascular disease. So the further down you are on this scale, the more psychosocial stress you have and the more risk you have for cardiovascular disease. And this is driven by inflammation, right? And so um, what we also know is that in that same population, if you just measure pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, yeah. C-reactive protein, these are very well-established biomarkers of inflammation. Those biomarkers can predict depressive symptoms up to 11 years later. That is just- In that same population. That is just unbelievable. So I would argue for the long-term health of white collar workers in city government offices and other offices around the world, we have an obligation to do whatever we can to reduce that what we call chronic low-grade inflammation that puts people at higher risk, not only of physical yeah. health and uh, diseases like cardiovascular disease, but also mental health disorders like depression. Yeah which arguably can be just or uh, just as or more uh, detrimental to um, health and performance as some of these other conditions, physical conditions. Yeah. I mean, Associate Professor Christopher Lowry, all I can finish off is just by saying thank you so much. 
Um, I wish, I, I think if you're up for it, we need to follow this up um, in some in, in some other way because I'm pretty sure everyone who's listening is, is just going to be the same as me, like processing now and thinking, how do we use this information? Um, and I just want to finish by saying thank you so much for taking the time out to actually share this research with us because I think it's so fundamental, one, the research, but two, the thinking about what does this mean for the future. So um, on behalf of all of us, I would just like to say thank you and hopefully we can continue the conversation. It's been great fun. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.